As of the taping of this podcast, we are six weeks from the national election. Now, if you've listened to this podcast, you already know how passionate I am about talking about this election, keeping you informed about having thoughtful, critical discussions about politics, because we need to know what is at stake in this election. So I'm going to be going hard on politics for the foreseeable future, both with political guests. And I can't wait until you all find out some of the amazing guests that I have coming from the political arena. And also to have these discussions with celebrities, because many of them want to speak out about the state of this country and they want to use forums such as this one to encourage people to vote and to encourage you to stay involved. But not only will there be a noticeable leveling up in the political discourse on this show, I'm going to drop a couple extra podcasts on you guys because damn it, I got shit I want to talk about. And I've guessed I want to talk about certain things with. So this week you are getting two podcasts. Now, I'll get to today's guest in a moment, but coming up on Thursday will be my brother from Detroit, Big Sean. You really don't want to miss that podcast because his new album, Detroit 2, just dropped. Shit is fire. But there's one song on his album called Deep Reverence, which includes a verse from Nipsey Hussle. It's such a personal song, and we are going to do a deep dive into that and into so much more. So make sure you look out for that. With that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's get to the word of the week, which is settlement. Last week, the city of Louisville agreed to pay Breonna Taylor's family $12 million, which is the largest settlement in a use of force case in Louisville history. But this isn't worth celebrating. Not even a little bit, not even close. Let's get one thing straight off top. The family deserves this money. I don't know what would have been the right amount of money because you can't put a price on what her family has lost, but they deserve it. And I certainly would not have minded seeing them get a little bit more. Besides the money, the city also agreed to implement some form of police reform. For example, they are establishing a housing credit program to encourage officers to live in the city. Police also will be encouraged to volunteer two hours every two week pay period in the communities that they serve. The city also promised that the police would be more transparent and they would be held more accountable, which included an overhaul of how search warrants are obtained. In addition, random drug testing of officers will be increased. This is an effort, I suppose. But here's what I need people to really absorb. One, Breonna Taylor's killers are still free. Criminal charges have yet to be filed against anyone. And we need to prepare ourselves for the fact, and I hope that I'm wrong that those charges may never come. The other part we need to remember is that you, as in the taxpayers, pay for police misconduct, criminality, neglect, and incompetence. The police have something called qualified immunity, which shields government officials from being personally sued for their own misconduct. Now, if you're thinking, why the hell would we ever give any government official this much power? Well, here's your answer. Racism. I mean, y'all shouldn't be surprised because doesn't it always come back to that? So here's what happened. The Civil Rights Act of 1871, also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, gave Americans the right to sue public officials who violate their legal rights. So, for example, there was a case where a black family sued the Chicago police after they broke into their home without a warrant, rounded them up and made them stand naked in their own living room. They arrested the father of the family, James Monroe, detained and interrogated him for hours. The family successfully sued the police department. But y'all know they weren't about to have a law that allowed black people to hold white police officers accountable for their abuses. So in 1967, qualified immunity was born after the Supreme Court decided it would make an exception for public officials who acted in quote unquote good faith. Over time, the courts have told victims of police abuse that unless there is a precedent that shows the specific abuses they have suffered, then they just shit out of luck. But here's why qualified immunity needs to go in the cities with the largest police forces in the nation, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, those kind of places. Taxpayers paid out over 300 million to settle or fight civil lawsuits against law enforcement in 2019. In New York alone, that figure was one hundred and seventy five million dollars. So even if you're one of these types who wants to cape for the police and is out here shouting blue lives matter from a pure selfish standpoint, do you want to continue to fund police lawlessness? 
Mr. and Mrs. Blue Lives Matter also should want transformation in the police department, not just reform, because as long as the police have no oversight, no checks and balances and are allowed to do as they please without consequence, they will simply continue to use taxpayer money to subsidize their own recklessness. So that's why I can't even celebrate or feel good about the money that will be paid to Breonna Taylor's family, because in a roundabout way, they were forced to fund the murder of their loved one. And that's my word of the week. Okay, on to today's show. My guest played one of the most iconic women ever in dramatic television history as she spent six years playing the sharply dressed, laser-tongued political fixer Olivia Pope. More recently, she starred in the gripping Netflix drama American Son and the Hulu hit series Little Fires Everywhere, which is the shit. I mean, everything I just mentioned that she's done is the shit, but Little Fires Everywhere is especially the shit. But on top of being a hell of an actor, she's an activist, a producer, director, and she's not shy about using her platform to amplify the things that really matter. Joining me on today's episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the beautiful and talented Carrie Washington. So, Carrie, I, I have to thank you for being one of many uh, who have contributed to my COVID viewing, uh, my, my TV. I, uh, I just finished Little Fires Everywhere. Everybody had been telling me about it for a while. But I have to say, being that I'm so connected to the sports world, that sports pro- programming dominated most of what I watched. And so I would have to wait until the off season and then I'd have a list of like 40 shows that I needed to watch. But I got to Little Fires Everywhere so much sooner. And man, I am uh, everything everybody said about it was completely true about how great it was. But um, I got to tell you, man, Reese Witherspoon, she played like the white woman of all white women. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like the prototypical Karen. It was so brave of her, I think, in a way, you know, because people know in real life, Reese is like one of my closest friends. She's down with Ava DuVernay. She tags with Oprah. Like she's real black adjacent. <laughs> she would, you know, she would probably laugh if I said that, but she's very, um, let me say she has a very open heart and she is committed to, she's committed to the idea that everybody deserves equal rights and equal access across gender lines, across race lines, all of that. So, um, for her to dive into figuring out how to embody this woman and really, um, be her, but also like understand how she became that person and why she became that person and what it cost her to be that person and how being that person impacts the circles of community around her. Like, I just thought it was very, it was a beautiful commitment she made to bring that character to life and not an easy one. Yeah. I was going to, um, you know, say that is like, I, I'm very well aware of her, her, her work as, as Reese Witherspoon and know that she is definitely an ally. Um, and so it, it, to see her in this role, it was, I, I thought it, it was like you did. I thought it was quite brave of her to, to play it, but you all kind of get to the underbelly of something that isn't, I don't think talked about a lot is that that existing tension that can be between black women and white women. Um, is that one of the exploring those dynamics? Is that one of the things that drew you to this particular work? Yeah. I mean, there was so much that drew me to little fires. I think, I think primarily the idea, um, the sort of brave and bold exploration of motherhood and that there are lots of different kinds of mothers and, and what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a daughter, how you sometimes find your mothers in other women outside the woman you're born to and how threatening that can be when your child does that. Like those were some of the themes that really captivated me. But it was undeniably also about identity and identity in the 90s. Um, And so the racial politics, the class politics were also really interesting to me. I think also like how we keep secrets from each other, particularly within families, that was also really interesting to me. the character of Mia, like that she's so unapologetic about who she is, you know, like she makes the choices she makes for herself and she doesn't feel like she needs to explain them to anybody else. And um, there's something I really was drawn to because I'm, I'm not that kind of unapologetic person. I think I, I, 
I, I work a lot on, on sort of, um, you know, not people pleasing. And, and so that, that energy of hers of like, I'm an artist, I'm on the go. Like, if you have questions, those are your questions. That's not my business. Like that, that part of her also was really attractive to me to, to like get a sense of what would it be like to be that kind of person? Mm, That's interesting that you say that about yourself, because I think people maybe because of the kind of roles that you play or um, just in, in the glimpses that we see of you as a person, you do seem rather unapologetic. So you're doing a good job of like of, of showing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an actor. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I've learned to, um, I'm learning, right? I'm learning to show up for who I really am and to not, um, to not seek approval from other people in order to be that person. But I think it's challenging. I think, you know, as women, particularly as black women, we're not, we're not always given that toolbox to just be like, this is who I am, whether you agree with it or not. We, we belong to a lot of communities that require us to, to, or ask of us to be who they want us to be. And so it's always a journey for me to try to check in with myself and make sure that I'm being who I need me to be and who the people I'm closest to need me to be. Uh, yeah. One last thing about Little Fires Everywhere. I definitely appreciate the fact that it was set in Shaker Heights and that um, Reese's character worked for the Plain Dealer. I interned at the Plain Dealer. <laughs> no. Yes. I interned at the Plain Dealer. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Coming up. And so I'm very familiar with um, Shaker Heights because I also lived in Shaker Heights. <laughs> so when I was an intern there, I rented a room from a woman who lived in Shaker Heights. I was like, oh, people don't you don't know about this. <laughs> wow. So it was great. It was like a nice full, full circle moment. Uh, the plane dealer, best paid internship I had in college by far. I couldn't believe they paid that much money as a union shop. Great place to work. <laughs> wow. Shout out to plane dealer. Yeah. Shout out to the plane dealer. Um, all right. I want to pivot now and ask you about something that you have been extremely uh, passionate about, which is voting. Mm-hmm. Of course, saw you at the uh, Democratic National Convention. What was it like to be a part of that in a very different type of convention than we've ever seen? Yeah, it was wild. That week was the first week that I was like out of my house on a set again. I had done two nights um, guest hosting for Jimmy Kimmel on Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday I did the convention. And um, I hadn't been around a crew in six months. and so it was, it was scary, um, to be honest, it was, you know, and to be in this new landscape of like, you go on set, but everybody is six feet away from you. Everybody's got a mask and a shield. Nobody's touching you. If you need to do you fix your makeup, you do it yourself. Like all of that is, um, it's, it is a very different world, but I felt like the DNC was the right, it was the reason to do it. You know, like I've spoken at previous conventions. I feel really strongly that um, democracy works when we all show up. And, um, and as I, you know, as my career kind of started to take off, I always wanted, I made the commitment to myself to not quiet myself because I now had this platform or like to not quiet myself to say like, Oh, well now I'm an actor. I don't want to say anything that, make somebody not like me, like to really continue to, to remain a participant in my democracy, to continue to be, you know, before I was an actor, I was going to marches, I was going to rallies, I was signing petitions. I was, you know, in the earlier parts of my career, I was walking through the halls of the Congress asking for increased arts funding. So I just wanted to make sure that as my star continued to rise, as they say, that I didn't then decide I should now be quiet, you know? Um, so I don't, speak out about voting or about participating because I'm an actor, but because I'm an American. And I feel like we all, that's how democracy works. We all have to have our voices be heard. Are, are you um, annoyed? And maybe annoyed isn't the right word. Maybe it's pissed off or whatever, <laughs> but that people, there is this idea and it's been pushed by this moron of a president that there's only certain people that deserve to have a say in what this democracy is. And so often you hear that term, you Hollywood elites and all this, and like you don't also deserve to have a voice because I assume you pay taxes just like everybody else, probably more than a lot of folks as well, right? Yeah. Is it frustrating that there are people who believe that someone in your position doesn't have a right to voice matters about voting or, or whatever, whatever criticisms you may have for the government and the way things are running? 
Yeah, it does. Because, you know, nobody should be silenced because of their job, right? Like I have a job that does um, allow me greater visibility. And so maybe I have to be extra responsible um, in ensuring that what I say comes from my heart and is me speaking for me and not me speaking on behalf of any other organizations or ideologies, which I don't. When I speak about this country, I speak as a mother, I speak as a woman, I speak as a black person, I speak as a kid who grew up in the Bronx, across the street from the projects. Like I don't speak as a Hollywood elite, I speak as somebody who's the mother of black children, as somebody who had student loans way longer than I thought I would. Like I speak as somebody who is who cares about my community and the community that my family lives in, um, my extended family. So. You know, I'm, I'm never going to be quiet because somebody else thinks I should. To me, whenever somebody says to um, to a, an entertainer or an athlete or an actor, like, you shouldn't have a voice, to me, that's a reminder to stay in my voice because I can't let people silence me. You know, people fought, you know, we all hear this all the time and I feel like sometimes we get tired of hearing it, but I have to remind myself, like, people fought so hard for me to have a voice. Like, as a woman... As a woman, women went to jail in petticoats, like got locked up in like, you know, corsets to be for so for us as women to be able to vote. And even as as a young person, like a lot of students don't know that it used to be that you had to be 21 to vote. Right. It used to be that this country could send you off to war at 18 years old, but you had no say in who your commander in chief was. And students fought for the right for young people to be able to vote. So when I turned 18, because I have amazing parents. My parents like took me out to dinner and were like, you can vote. Who are you going to vote for? This is so exciting. Like treating it like the real, you know, the, the sort of important rite of passage that it is. And of course, for black folks, you know, they've been trying to disenfranchise the black vote. We, we were three fifths of a person in the Constitution. They are still trying to purge black votes. You know, the recent study that just came out from the ACLU in Georgia that that 63 percent of the names that were purged from the voting logs, that they were wrongly purged. So almost 200,000 people in Georgia alone were unable to vote as a mistake. Like, that's not a mistake. That's not a mistake. No, not at all. Especially when you consider what Stacey Abrams lost that uh, gubernatorial bid by 55,000 votes. Um, the suppression is real. Mm-hmm. That brings me to something I was going to ask you about. You had her when you guest hosted Jimmy Kimmel. You had Stacey Abrams on to talk about um, voting. Um, you know, as I said, you've been very vigilant about using your your platform for this particular issue. Why did you want to focus on voting as being your your way of giving voice to a real issue in our community. I guess I'm just drawn to to ways that I feel like guarantee that we are seen. You know what I mean? Like even people always ask me, like even in my acting, like oh, you, it seems like you make such political choices in your work as an actor, and I feel like the reality is I'm a woman and I'm a black person. So if I put myself at the center of the story you're going to see that as a political act because the agenda has always been for me to be on the sidelines of the story, to not be in the center. So I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to expand the narrative of whose stories we tell and who we see, who we listen to, who we acknowledge, who matters, right? And so I think that's I think that's why I've been so vocal about the census, which, by the way, like we're at the final moments. If you haven't done the census, September's the last month. Do it. It's so easy. It takes 10 minutes and that information lasts for the next 10 years. And the census is how we figure out like how many representatives you have in Congress, but how much money your schools get, your hospitals get, your parks, like all the resources for your community, that information comes from the census. So please know it is not smoke at your door. It is not like, it's not trickery. It's not, it's really like how we get seen, how we get counted. Um, so the census and then voting is the same thing for me. It's like, this is, this is how, you know, protesting, which is so important, is how we get seen in the streets, how, how we make our voices heard publicly, how we let the media know about the things we care about, how we let international audiences all over the, the world know, like, this is who we are, this is what we care about. But voting is how we get seen in the halls of power. It's how we make our voices heard to the people who are making the decisions that govern our lives. And so to me, we need it all. We need to be protesting, we need to be voting. 
you mentioned a minute ago about how some people look at your the roles you decide to play as political choices just because you're a black woman and how dare you think about taking roles that actually you know <laughs> highlight what it's like in America to be a black woman or different facets of that dynamic. But clearly these choices are working out because you are sitting on four Emmy nominations um, right now at the taping of this podcast. Uh, that's a lot of Emmys, <laughs> a lot of Emmy nominations. Rather. Um, what does that mean to you, uh, if anything? I don't know. I mean, it it goes back a little bit to what I said before. Like, I, I do think it's really important to me to make sure that my sense of self that my validation does not come from outside myself, right? Like I have to, my measure of success, I really try for my measure of success to come from how hard I worked, like how much of myself I put out there and how I feel about it. Um, But it's undeniable that when other people also share in my feeling good about the work, it's affirming and it's exciting. But I think particularly this year, like when I look at those nominations, when I look at a nomination for Little Fires or when I look at a nomination for American Sun in particular, again, like what that tells me is that those black women have been seen, right? Like it tells me that audiences are seeing Mia and audiences are seeing Kendra. They are seeing these black mothers who are making challenging decisions when they are confronted with racism overtly and covertly, that they are, you know, for for people to acknowledge those performances, they're acknowledging those Black women. And that means a lot to me because, again, it's like, for me, this work, all of the work, whether it's about voting or the census or the stories I'm telling on screen, it's about, can we see each other? Like, can we see each other in a, in a, in a country where black people in the constitution were designated three fifths of a human being, can you see my full humanity as a black woman? That to me is what the work is. Mm. You know, I'm sure obviously when you did American Sun, little, uh, both as a Broadway play and, and then uh, on Netflix, you could not have predicted that we would be in this time that we're in now. And I, I think I read somewhere that about how American Sun saw a huge amount of viewership because people are relating it so much you know, to this moment when that project first came, you know, your way, um, were you thinking that this was going to make a statement? It, I have to say for my heart rate, it is, ooh, that is something to watch. <laughs> like when I watched this, I was like on the edge the whole time, like what is happening? You know, it does send you through a ton of different emotions from much, from a lot of different perspectives, not just the perspective of, of the parents that are are involved as they look for their son, but, um, you know, what was it that you felt like, why was it important to have a project like this to do? Yeah, I guess when I first read American Son, I um, I think I was drawn to it because I'd never, I don't know, it felt like a four very different people having private conversations in public, like saying things to each other in public that we normally only say in our separate circles. And I think we live in a world, especially right now, where because of the way the 24 news hours cycles go and the way these different channels have set themselves up and the way social media kind of gives you news that already agrees with the things you believe, we tend to not be having these tough conversations across identity lines, right? Like we have conversations with people who look like us and sound like us and think the same things we do, but we don't brave conversations across those lines to try to understand each other. And I felt like that's what these four characters were really struggling to do. Um, And I thought that was important. Um, And I just had never, I felt like You know, so often when we meet the Kendras, when we meet the mothers of kids who come up against police violence, it's after, it's after the incident, it's after the tragedy. And so I I loved the idea of us being like intimately embedded with this mom on the ride when the stakes are high, you know, before she's a victim, when she's like a concerned mother, because every mother is a concerned mother. It's part of the job description. Once you become a mother, your concern goes skyrocketing, right? But when you're a black mother, that's complicated by the fact that there are these systems in place to demonize your child. Um, 
So there was a lot. I think also like just the fact that she was in a lot of ways, the un-Olivia Pope, right? Like I had spent seven years playing this very particular kind of woman, of Black woman. And Kendra was like everything that Olivia is not. They were just polar opposites. And I, I think I was drawn to that exercise also just as an artist, right? Like it's, it's like the great athletes who pick up the opposite sport. You know, you go from basketball to baseball, but because you know it, it's like a challenge and you want to grow. So. Um... You know, um, with this role in, in particular, you, you mentioned how the different perspectives. Was there a perspective that was in the script of something that you yourself, you know, you found yourself in like, huh, I hadn't really kind of thought of it from this angle. A lot of it. All the other three characters, all those guys had moments when I read it that I was like, oh, wow. I never I mean, I still felt like Kendra was right because <laughs> that's my job to feel like she knows the most. She is the closest to the truth. But um, but as a producer, also, I really had to make sure that the other characters felt believable and grounded. And we had such phenomenal actors to to do that. And our, our brilliant director, Kenny Leon. Um, so but yeah, I did. I felt like I learned from all three of those other characters. And I hope that they learned from Kendra. I know that they did because I love those guys and they always said that they did. But. So what's it like um, being a Black mother during this time of like, I would know how to describe what 2020 is right now, but uh, I imagine it's made your job quite difficult with all the things happening in the country. COVID, you have, you know, the pandemics of racism and, um, you know, a virus running you know, kind of neck and neck for attention. So as a mother, uh, how do you handle this time? How do you put it in perspective for your children? I don't know. I think we're all trying to wrap our heads around this moment and meet this moment. So I do think um, a big part of it is like self-care. I know that might sound crazy and corny, but like I'm, I really try to think about like, what do I need to be doing right now to take care of myself so that I am present for them to be able to answer the questions of who is this girl, Brianna Taylor on my t-shirt and why do we want to arrest the cops? Like to be having those conversations with young children, um, it requires a lot of presence and, um, and like ability to navigate their journey with this information um, and to be there for them because there's so much uncertainty in the world. And I don't think that my job as a mom is to take away all the uncertainty because dealing with uncertainty is, is part of the human experience. But can I like navigate the uncertainty with them and try to mitigate what is age appropriate? Um, it's, it's challenging. It's an ongoing conversation. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm most curious about is I know that there's probably a part of you that wants to maintain their innocence, but at the same time, there's it's not easy to do in, in this environment. So how do you how do you juggle the juggle that I don't have children and I couldn't imagine how I would talk to a child of a certain age about racism in this country. So how do you find the balance between wanting them to be informed, but wanting to preserve their innocence? Yeah, it's a balance. It's about and ours, you know, ours range in age from three to 14. So it's different. It's different for each one. Um, and you, you got to know your kid. And um, and and again, like that presence, that ability to be like fully in the moment and like share some information and then share more and decide when not to. But, maybe, you know, you just, it's just a, I think it's a dance. But I find that actually for me, like one of the things I need to do is to make sure that I'm that I'm doing that balance for myself, right? Like not to maintain my innocence per se, but like to maintain my sanity and my calm while also still getting the information that I need and um and like facing the realities that I need to face. So it is it it's it's like I have to start again, I have to start with me. Like right now I'm I'm reading Isabel Wilkerson's cast. I am too. <sighs> I know. Um, and I'm going, I'm going back and forth between like sometimes reading it, sometimes listening to it. Cause sometimes I like, I have to like physically put it down, but I want to keep going. And even that idea of like taking care of myself enough to, to take in the information in the way that my body can metabolize it in a moment. Sometimes I'm listening to it and then I'm like, well, let me stop listening to it. Cause I want to go highlight that in the book, right? Like going and, and it's hard. It's like, it's such necessary information. Like, 
what an important work and so important even for me to be contextualizing this moment we're in with world history and and like even just to know like like on the positive note to look at my computer and look at your face and look at my face and say like we are a miracle right like if if our ancestors knew who we could be and what we could be doing and that we could even share space in this way and have the level of agency and um, freedom and liberation that we have as limited as it is in ways by, by these institutions that try to impact our lives. We are, we still are quite frankly, the, the manifestation of their dreams. Um, and, and reading her work reminds me of that. It also just reminds me of how much work we still have to do. Um, but, but yeah, so, it, you know, that doing that dance with myself is where I have to start. And then I can even begin to start to think about it with the kids, but it's all necessary, you know? Yeah, it, it is tough, though, because I, I think cast is brilliant. I, I, I also read Warmth of Other Suns, her, her first novel, which is, I think, should be required reading for a lot of people in this country, as should cast. And uh, I interviewed her recently for this podcast, and it'll be out later. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. Isabel is is a is a treasure, like a true treasure. And yeah, truly. As I'm reading the book, I'm almost done. And I've just vacillated between being uh, happy to have this information and realizing, as you said, being that manifestation, but also wanting to choke somebody out because it is you're just like, what is going on? Because there are days and you're so right about that balance that you have to personally have because I have to do it too. Because there are, honestly, there's some days and I just look at like the, my news feed and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, what is going on? Yeah. And I don't, you know, I know I had to stay out of that moment because then it's not going to be totally productive because I'm just going to be raging all day. And so I'm glad that I think you saying self-care is really part of it is truly important trying to get this necessary information but yet also trying to protect your sanity a little bit because you just like man we we all won yeah but you know there can also be a there can be a dance where they help each other too like yes it's crazy making when somebody says like how dare you carrie washington have a voice you're so privileged hollywood actor person and then you read cast and you read you know that statement that lebron made based on the the incidents of other athletes like no matter what i do no matter how many emmy nominations i am still scared at times to scooter in neighborhoods with my kids where i feel like somebody could call the cops because that cop may never have seen scandal Right. Like, like I, I still have that very real fear. And, and so reading cast lets, you know, also like my fear is not irrational. My fear is rooted in historical truth and fact. And, and it's like, there is real social science to support the fact that I do deserve to continue to speak out because these realities impact me. And if I'm scared, imagine how somebody who's a frontline worker who can't say, haven't you, do you know who I am? Call, call this Google me. You know what I mean? I like all of those dynamics of like, people think I could just say to a cop who pulls me over, like Google me, like that hasn't ever actually worked. But like, imagine how scared somebody is who doesn't have some of the resources that I have. Yeah. And you, um, and you're married to a black man. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm 10 months into being married and congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. Um, but we live, you know, we live in a, a good neighborhood. I like to think, but you know, my husband goes out jogging pretty much every day. He goes running every day sometimes because it's been hot here in LA recently. He goes without his shirt or whatever, because it's hot. And so I think about this in the context of Ahmaud Arbery, right? And it just like, yeah, these are real fears that we live with. And sometimes you do need a work like cast to convince yourself that your, these fears are not just irrational and imaginary. Like this is what it is. This is the job that you've, you've signed up for. Um, got a lot more that I want to ask you um, about. Definitely want to ask you about your documentary, the fight. Um, and also about Chadwick Boseman. Cause uh, I, I saw some things that you, you said about him, but that, and a little bit of game of Thrones. Cause I know you're a game of Thrones. <laughs> fan. So I gotta get your perspective on that too. So we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Carrie Washington. So uh, among the many things that you have done in your illustrious career beyond just acting and producing, you also have been directing 
and you directed one of my favorite shows, Insecure. Oh, it's such a great show. It's such an amazing show. And, but what was really interesting is when um, I read what some of the cast said about what it was like <laughs> working with you. <laughs> they clowned me. They clowned me so hard. I was like, you ladies, this is so wrong. This is so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but they gave you a lot of credit. It wasn't like a complete clouding or whatever. Yeah. So I, I'll get I'll get your side of this, Carrie. What was the experience like? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so much love. I just I you know I I'm such a huge fan of Insecure. I think Issa is a genius, and um, Yvonne is just like equally brilliant. And um, and I really I've been a fan of the show since season one. Season one started right when my son was born, and I used to like wait to watch it till that middle of the night feed where I was like alone in in the sitting room at 2 a.m. and I could just watch my Insecure while I was nursing my son. Um, and uh, I, when I went to direct, I had a blast, but I also wanted to challenge them. You know, I was, I, ha I was on a show for seven seasons and I know what it feels like to have a director just kind of traffic control and tell people where to stand. And I know what it feels like to have a director who really challenges you. And there's a lot of joy that comes from being challenged in that way and discovering new things about your character when somebody really cares about the characters and the actors. So I pushed them and I pushed them on a Friday night at like 1 a.m. And, um, <laughs> and they were not happy with me. Um, but, th but they also were really happy with their performances. And um, it's all respect. It's all love. They, you know, I, I just, I adore them. And, and I know, I'm, they know I want to come back for season two. So I didn't try to misbehave too much. Um, but I did want to challenge them. I wanted them to do work that, that even surprised themselves because I know how deeply talented they both are. They all said the same thing. They said that everything you did was about making the work better and that it was about challenging them and not letting them get complacent in, in what they were doing. How did the opportunity even even come up? You know, it's funny when I directed television for the first time, I directed an episode of Scandal and I wanted I had done some shadowing at Scandal, but I wanted to also like widen my perspective. So I asked Issa if I could come shadow at Insecure and I shadowed Melina Matsukis, um, who's, of course, the genius behind Queen and Slim. And um, and I sh she did the pilot for Insecure and a bunch of those episodes. So I came and I shadowed Melina to prepare for directing at Scandal. Um, and that was a really fantastic opportunity. And um, and I love that crew. And I'm just a big fan of the show. So when Scandal ended, I started to direct in some other shows. I directed at Smilf. And, you know, I've really only directed at shows that I love. Um, and so I mentioned to Issa that I would be interested and, and we figured out how to make it work schedule wise, which was insane because it was really like right after I wrapped little fires, I went straight to insecure to direct. Um, and then how we had Thanksgiving. So it was, it was pretty tight, but we made it work. And I was, I was really grateful because they're, they're just a, a great crew. And I loved my script. I felt so lucky that I got such a, I mean, all the scripts are good, but I loved my episode. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what do you find to be maybe the most exhilarating about directing versus, you know, when obviously you're being an actor, what do you find? What do you love about it? I think, let me start. What I love about producing is that you get to be um, like a team captain on a team that you really love. And you are like creating an opportunity for other people to excel and pursue excellence, right? Like as a producer on Little Fires, it's better than being just an actor because you're creating the whole space for people to be employed and to pursue excellence, to like do their best. And you get to cheer them on and you get to problem solve. You get to be a little bit of an Olivia Pope on set. Like if there's a problem, you fix it. And um, all of that is really exciting to me. And I think directing is like, is a distillation of that. It's like being the team leader who's just in charge of the art. Not so much the finance, not the call sheets, not the budgets. You're just, you're the team leader of the creative part. Um, and so I, I just love that. I love um, encouraging people to, and I love, I love creating things together. You know, I really, I really like that filmmaking 
and television making, unlike writing poetry or painting, it's like a group art. You know, it's like it only works if everybody comes to work and does their job. And that to me is really exciting. It's exciting to be part of a family in that way. You um, also produced a documentary called The Fight, which is about the ACLU and, and all the important work that they do and how they you know, fight for this democracy consistently on a daily basis. You seem to have a very real passion for justice. Like, where does that come from? Huh. Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, I'm really proud of the fight. It's a really great reminder. Like if anybody out there is trying to figure out how to tell your family members how important it is to vote, like what the stakes are, I encourage you to watch the fight with them because it's a real reminder of of what we're up against. Um, and also it's a reminder of these heroes at the ACLU. They are like like real life superheroes who are walking amongst us, fighting the good fight, protecting all of us. So it's really inspiring to, to like be on the ground with them. But maybe, I don't know. That's such a good question. I was, you know, where does my passion for justice come from? I think I'm going to have to think about that more. I mean, maybe it just comes from, I think I'm a really empathetic person. And some of that is because I'm an actor, like it's my job to walk in other people's shoes and think about how other people live and think. But I think I, I just am like, I think it's just part of my constitution that I'm an empathetic person. So it's hard for me to accept when other people are in pain um, and to think that that's okay. It's just hard. Yeah, no, I understand it can be difficult because uh, as you said, as an actor, like you do something that most of us don't actually do. And it's a reason why we constantly have these conversations that go nowhere because we can't put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And so there is a, a general uh, lack of empathy. Um, in acting, um, you know, recently there was a very, um, you know, sort of devastating loss with the death of Chadwick Boseman. Uh, discuss what your relationship um, was with him and like, how you will remember him. Oh, you know, I wasn't very close to Chadwick, to be honest with you. I, I just knew him very casually. Um, I was very moved today by by what Lupita Nyong'o wrote about him on her Instagram. It's also just a reminder of what a fantastic writer Lupita is. Um, it was so beautifully, perfectly stated. Um, but I think I think what always struck me about Chadwick when I when I was blessed to share space with him was um, some of the things that Lupita mentioned that he he just he was never rushing. He was so present um, in the moment with you. That was what we all knew by sharing space with him, even without knowing what his private struggle was. Um, and so, you know, it's it is a a devastating loss, and also a real reminder. I think for all of us to have more empathy and compassion because you don't know what other people are going through. And also a reminder to like live fully, like live in purpose and live fully. Yeah. Um, when I read what Ryan Coogler wrote as well, um, all of the tributes between Michael B. Jordan, Lupita, Ryan Coogler, I mean, it it was one where I definitely had to kind of brace myself because it just... You look at what he was able to do since his diagnosis. Some actors don't do that an entire span of their careers. And the fact that he did it while suffering from this disease is just really remarkable. So um, I know a lot of people will miss him dearly. I certainly will. Um, and I got a chance to interact with him a few times. And he was just what you said. Like he's he has this presence about him where, you know, you feel, um, you know, listened to when you talk to him. He's just like a very gentle but very kind and, and gracious person. So that part I will always appreciate um, Yeah, about Chadwick as well. Um, you know, it, it feels like Hollywood um, is going to be dramatically changed by COVID-19. Um, I saw that The Rock, Robert Pattinson, you have actors that have tested positive. Um, how much concern or fears do you have about when you have to fully, fully kind of resume work and what that might look like. You talked about the, the Democratic National Convention getting a taste of being on set again, but, you know, your reservations, your concerns, your fears, you know, what are they as Hollywood tries to move forward through this virus? It's scary. It's really scary. Um, 
And I just, you know, particularly as a producer, like I know we're just really focused on trying to figure out the best protocols and to learn as quickly as we can from what works and what doesn't work and um, to just try to move forward with as much commitment to safety as possible. Um, Yeah, it's, it is, like I said, it's just a time of so much uncertainty Um, and, and just to to bring it back to voting, one of the things I think about a lot is you look at these other countries who have been able to handle it with so much more strength and grace, like their numbers are in much more control because their leaders took it seriously and because they're listening to science. And, you know, our communities are dying, particularly the black community, communities of color disproportionately, you know, we're losing loved ones and and dealing with the impacts of this virus in ways that we should not be. We should not be having to fight this fight in the way that we are fighting it right now. We should be back in school. We should be back at work. But it was because this administration leadership on a national level did not do their job to protect us and to listen to science and to take this seriously that we are in this position. So it's why we can't sit this out. Like people sit at home saying like, oh, politics, I'm not into politics. Like I said when I spoke at the DNC years ago, like you may not be thinking about politics, but politics is thinking about you. Politics is thinking about you every single day. Decisions are being made about where you can live, how you can vote, how you drive, what you learn, what you eat, what you wear. And if you don't show up and vote, you don't get to have a say in those things. You don't get to be liberated because you're not expressing your vote. And and I even understand people who may not be excited per se. I'm excited about having a change on the national level. I'm excited to vote for a president. I'm excited to vote for Kamala Harris. But if you're not excited, show up and vote to, to prevent the, the administration that's been empowered to continue to do what it's doing. And then also vote for all those other races, like vote for the sheriff that's going to that's going to allow for police reform, vote for judges that are going to treat young black men like human beings and not just throw them into a prison industrial complex. Vote for DAs that 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 operate in ways that respect our community. Like there are so many you know, school, like school supervisors, you know, there are so many elections in our communities that matter, that really, really matter. And they matter because we matter. I tell people that this is not just about Donald Trump being on the ballot. It's about so much more that you're trying to stop. It's about the other elections that are also on the table. It's about the Senate as well. Okay. Because there needs to be some leadership change there. Um, So it is about more than that. So I, I, could not agree with you more. It's like people, we're going to need to show up in an Obama-like way in this election if we want to really see some of these changes take place. And when people say like, yes, people show up to vote for a black person. And so everybody turned out to show up and vote for Barack Obama because people will vote for a black candidate. Well, I say vote for yourself. If you're black, vote for yourself because your like your power is on the line. So if if you don't want to show up and vote because somebody doesn't make you excited, be excited about yourself. <laughs> be excited about making choices that impact your life. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> That's self-care for you. <laughs> That's a pretty good reason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is self-care. Voting is self-care. There you go, right? <laughs> yeah. Um so uh, your husband, uh, Namdi, is now into acting, right? So how does that work when you now have two actors in, in, in the house? Do you give them advice or are you just let them kind of figure it out? <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to like shout out his amazing Real Sports interview that just aired recently. If you haven't seen it, it's so great. And it's really a lot about him. Um, as a as an actor and a producer and the transition from professional sports into that world. Um, and it just, I loved watching it because I really felt like that's him. Like you really see him um, in that interview. And, um, you know, we're, as I think we're like notoriously private, but, um, but I'll just say like, we've always really um, shared a lot with each other. So, you know, we share professionally, we share personally. Um, I think the work he's doing is amazing. I think Sylvie's love 
that that was just at Sundance and comes out this winter. It's a phenomenal film. He and Tessa are brilliant. It's a beautiful, much needed film in this time. Um, it's all about black love, which I, I just, we, I actually saw you on black love. We're like catching up on this season. So that was so beautiful. We're so excited for you guys. Um, yeah, but, it, but I'm, I'm so inspired by him. Yeah. He, I think everybody knew he had, uh, when he played, um, you know, that he had such a charitable heart. So him being involved, you know, on a philanthropic side is no shock to anybody, but, the actor part, I think, is a little surprising because he was always a little more reserved and quiet. And so to see this part of his personality just blossom is really quite amazing to see. Yeah. So before I get you out of here, Carrie, um, I play a game with all my guests. And it is called This or That. You get two choices, right? Two. <laughs> okay. I know. I know. As a listener, I'm aware. I was like, oh, gosh, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Okay. So you are on the hook right now for the fate of humanity to save the world based on these very direct choices. It is here. So uh, first one up on this or that, Brandy or Monica? Oh, that's impossible. Oh, we're going to start yeah. there. Oh, we're going to start there. Oh, man. I, can I choose versus Brandy or Monica? Can I just choose versus the whole versus moment? I can't choose. I can't choose. That's not an acceptable answer. <laughs> All right. Brandy or Monica, I might have to say, I, I, I'm going to say Brandy. Ah, I knew I could get it out of you. <laughs> but only because of the TV show. Because, you know, we share acting. That's it. Okay. That's the, that's the little slight edge that she has. Um, because I, this, you know, the one thing I love about Insecure, it seems every season they start a, a civil war in households because they always, it was like Lawrence and Issa. Now it's Molly yeah. or Issa. So that is your question. You team Molly or you team Issa? They both wrong. But, um, <laughs> but I'm going to go for, for, yeah, I'm going to go Issa. Mm, really? So do you feel as if Issa's a little less wrong than Molly? <sighs> Gosh, I don't know. Am I going Issa? No, I didn't mean to make you rethink it. <laughs> I think in, in, in my episode, you know, it's hard for me to shake in my episode when Molly sent that text, mm -hmm. that was just so wrong. Mm -hmm. I feel like they're both equally wrong, but I do feel like Issa's doing a better job of seeing things from Molly's perspective than Molly is from seeing things from Issa's perspective. So just for the empathy quotient, I'm going to give Issa a little bit of a heads up. Okay. Um, the more satisfying death, was it Joffrey or Walder Fry? Joffrey. That was like, kill that kid. You had to. <laughs> I actually, we actually went to the town in Barcelona where they shot that scene because it was like, yeah, I had to go to the place. <laughs> you had to go to the root. <laughs> to go to the site of the crime. The site, when you talk about justice, that's some justice. I mean, I don't really believe in corporal punishment. I don't really believe in the death penalty. But in the world of make-believe, that was some justice. It was. Um, how did you feel about the final season? I loved it. I loved it. But I also, I know how hard it is to end a show. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I know how, I know firsthand how hard it is to end a show. Um, so I, and I knew that no matter what, it was that people were going to be really mad and disappointed and heartbroken. And so I think I probably would have loved it no matter what, just because I felt for them. And, and I just, I, I was so grateful for the show in general. So, yeah, no, I, I, it was the final episode that just, Oh man, I, I didn't, I didn't love it. You didn't like I, it. No, I liked the, the final season overall. Um, but it, it just sort of, you know, with uh, with the way it ended, I, I understand why some fans were a little dissatisfied, but it's hard. Like, look, they they gave us incredible entertainment for a long time. It, I mean, it's hard to have a water cooler show. You know this with, with Scandal. Like, yeah. it's very hard to have a water cooler show. And, um, you know, I don't know when the next, like, true water co cooler show there, there will be. And so I was thankful. I, I was lucky because me and my husband, we started, we didn't start Game of Thrones till the last season, till three months before it ended. Oh yeah, and we started at season one, right? So we went through all the seasons. Just how fun! Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Like, and we were—I'm telling you—we was addicts. It was, 
it took over our house. It totally took over. Yeah. And I felt I felt good because I didn't have to wait. Like with sometimes it was like two years before the next season. I was like, I didn't have to go through that. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> I was good. Like, right. So I we finished the last episode right before the final season started. It was like, yes, we are in the hive. So it was all good. Now I, I'm told by my very reliable sources that these next two items I'm gonna name are your two favorite foods. And so you're gonna have to pick one. Yes. All right. Popcorn or pineapples? One got to go. Oh, I'm going to go pineapple. What? I'm going to go pineapple. I'm going to go pineapple. So you you can't do without popcorn. I love popcorn. We do popcorn for breakfast sometimes at my house. Um, But if we, because really what's the difference between cornflakes and popcorn? It's less sugar actually. Um, So I, if I, if I have a giant bowl of popcorn, Versus if I have a giant bowl of pineapple, I'm going to feel better the next day if I go with the pineapple. I'm going to love them both. But in the long term, it's going to sit with me a little bit better if I do the pineapple. I don't know if you've ever (laughs) done this. That was a very, that was a very, very reasonable answer. I don't know if you've ever done this with popcorn, but my life changed the day I put raisinets in the popcorn. Oh, it's everything. It's so good. So the chocolate, the saltiness. The- I used to, when I was a kid, I used to do the snow caps in the popcorn, which is also really just, I don't, do they even make snow caps anymore? I don't know. I feel like they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, well, Carrie, you did an excellent job on this or that. You were all concerned, right? Oof. Like you did a good job on it for Those sure. Those are hard. I'm going to hear it from, from, um, <laughs> from Issa. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh Yvonne's going to kill me for saying Issa. Oh, but anyway. Yeah, you're going to hear from Issa and uh, you will probably hear from Monica, from Monica Hive too. They're going to be... Oh, oh no. <laughs> Listen, Monica Hive, I love my Monica. I'm just biased because I, you know, I was that age of watching the Brandy Cinderella and Moesha and so just a little more of a well-rounded brand in my house. That's it. That's it. It leaves an impact. I understand. Carrie, thank you so much for deciding to spend this time with me. Um, I am so happy you are out here encouraging people to vote and staying on message consistently because I was looking at your, your Twitter timeline. It's like voting, voting, voting. I was like, yes, stay on this message. We need it. The, the most, you know, the most important thing is to have a plan right now. Like this, the rules are so different in every state. So vote early. Early. Don't wait till November. Vote early. Have a plan. Do not wait till November. Vote early. Yes. And people should know that you can still have the mail-in ballot and you can take it right into the poll and drop it off. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yep. You can drop it off. You can drop it off. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck with the Emmys um, and with all your projects uh, that you're doing on the production end, acting, of course, um, and everything else. You are a real inspiration to a lot of us who are watching. So thank you so much for everything. Thank you for having me. I'm such a huge fan. This is a treat. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Carrie's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. I hate fake shit. I mean, I could do an entire TED Talk on that alone. But in this case, I'm just going to direct my wrath. My fuck it, I'm bothered at Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Now, I know y'all thinking y'all heard me rant at the beginning of this podcast against the police and what happened with Breonna Taylor and the settlement. But I'm just so tired of bad faith actors. And Villanueva earned an Oscar for his acting in bad faith last week. So he challenged LeBron James to donate money to find the gunman who shot two Los Angeles County deputies at point blank range. Now I've seen the videos of these officers being shot and it is absolutely sickening. And I hope the gunman is found immediately. But Villanueva used his pulpit to bully LeBron and try to publicly paint LeBron as anti-police as two officers were fighting for their lives. That is some repugnant shit. 
Villanueva is singling out LeBron because he doesn't like the fact that he and other NBA players have been at the forefront of standing up for black people and challenging the police about how they treat us. It's a basic troll move. And those of us who regularly call for police accountability are frankly used to folks like Villanueva trying to spin this fake narrative that any criticism of the police means you are anti-police. LeBron isn't anti-police and neither am I. And LeBron doesn't have to put up reward money to prove that. Unfortunately, the police are so accustomed to being deified and having their authority basically go unchallenged that they try to twist any call for transparency and accountability until a full on persecution complex. They can't withstand the scrutiny because they truly have an us versus them mentality, at least when it comes to black people. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.